Houston, I understand you attended law school. I did. Okay. I did. And uh, when you came to LA, was your focus to become an attorney? No, it actually wasn't. That was the the main reason I came to LA uh, is so I wouldn't become an attorney. And uh, I went to law school in Virginia, and uh, at a great law school, and I really loved the experience and did really well. Uh, my focus was on entertainment law and litigation. At the same university where I went to law school, there was a film school as well. And so naturally, given the, the subject matter of my study, which was uh, film law and entertainment law, I uh, became friends with a number of film students uh, at the same university, started writing and producing content on the side of law school and all, and all the spare time you have in law school. And uh, then just kind of got bit by the bug uh, and really um, started to drill down in that last semester of law school you know, what exactly do I want to do with the rest of my life? Is it, you know, because I'm very much a, um, you know, I want to, I, I want to pursue work that doesn't feel like work. And if I could, you know, if money was no option and I could do anything I wanted to do, would it be going into the law office every day? Uh, is going to be in, going to a courtroom every day? And it wasn't. I was more attracted to the other side of the transaction on the entertainment side of things. So uh, luckily the, the Juris Doctor, uh, uh, degree is very versatile, and so um, I knew I could use it to uh, pursue entertainment as a producer, as an agent, as whatever I wanted to do when I got out here. And um, you know, at least that's what I told my mother-in-law. So, uh, so it wasn't a big waste of time. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so so uh, once I graduated law school in Virginia, um, pursued a couple uh, opportunities there, but we really made the decision to to really move out here. So. We, uh, 10 years ago, uh, just packed up our Jetta, sold everything we had, and just came out here. So, I've been here ever since, it's been great. Once you came to Los Angeles, you probably saw that a lot of people that had chosen the artist path, yep. it was a little trickier to actually, you know, support a family. Sure. How did you decide to incorporate, um, you know, your knowledge of contract law and all these other things uh, with the creative? Well, it's interesting because the biggest thing with, with law school is law school doesn't really it's not all about teaching you the law the biggest thing for me with law school was that it it teaches you how to think and it just rearranges your brain in such a way that you can now approach any problem and really be able to uh, deconstruct it in a different way to find an eventual solution and uh, so when I got out here it was you know I didn't go to film school um, and so now I needed to figure out how to break in just like the you know hundred thousand other people that do that every month and um, but I looked at the problem of breaking in in, in a different way. I think I was thinking about it differently because the line of screenwriters that are very talented, the line of directors that are very talented, those lines are very long and it's very competitive. They're all trying to go through a couple different doors. And for me, I wanted to try to figure out how to differentiate myself in the marketplace, find a different door in, into the industry. And, and I come from a really interesting, varied background uh, where you know, I was, I was a heavy creative writer in, in high school. I played a lot of tabletop role-playing games, like Dungeons & Dragons, but not Dungeons & Dragons, things like that. Um, they, uh, when I was in college, I wrote for the stage a lot. I uh, invented board games to sell off to licensors and manufacturers, which is sort of this bizarre hobby. Then once I got into law school, obviously I had my, my, my legal training, uh, but also wrote and produced uh, for the screen while I was in law school. So I, so, 
understanding sort of these bizarre skill sets that I have, I wanted to figure out how to leverage all those things to help differentiate myself in the marketplace to try to find a different way in. I quickly hooked up with a couple people once I was out here. One guy that had a comic book and a technology background, another guy that had a music background, he had 20 years in the music industry, and another guy that had this branding and marketing background. So we were all sitting around the table working on a pilot project, and um, we thought, okay, how do I how do we use all these other things that we have as a way to help leverage our project in a different way? How do we create this, this pilot, but at the same time incorporate a board game component, incorporate some technology or a comic component? How do we approach it in a brand building way rather than entertainment way? And uh, it was really this fascinating subject for me and it was a fascinating problem to try to solve. Once we started trying to do that, um, then that kind of got me to, into the area of transmedia. Um, but I don't think I would have done, could have done that if I hadn't analyzed the problem differently uh, from a legal perspective. Uh, because it, there's, there's, you know, the industry is, uh, is wildly complicated, uh, but at the same time, it's very similar to the, the way it's been run for the last 50, hundred years. And so for me, just sitting back, coming in completely fresh eyes, I looked at the way the industry was built and the way it was constructed, and a lot of it didn't make sense. And then a lot of the, the path that most people were taking seemed to be uh, not a logical path because it was like running headlong into the problems rather than trying a different path to solve the problem. Einstein always said that you can't, uh, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that caused it. And so, so I looked at the problem, looked at it differently, and thought we could take a different path. And so, uh, so that, that got me to where I am now, which is using all the tools at our disposal, all the mediums and platforms at our disposal in order to try to attack the, uh, the industry in a completely different way. So where most people attack sort of the industry from a right brain creative, yeah. you were coming from this left brain sort of analytical, critical thinking. Sure. Interesting. So yeah. that's that's where you said you, they sort of taught you a different way around it. Yeah. Whereas the long line was thinking from this right brain. Well, if I create this amazing story, it doesn't matter. I'll be let in. Yeah, exactly. And that's it, you know, and it it's interesting because I'm not even want to. I don't even want to say that's that's the wrong way because uh, it's it's the more competitive way. And so for me, uh, you know, you can have a you can have a lemonade stand. In a neighborhood, and, it's, and it'd be great. Uh, but if there's a hundred other lemonade stands that pop up in your same neighborhood, you have to start looking at how you approach your business differently. Uh, it's not just make how to make better lemonade, because uh, because at a certain point, it's really difficult to make better lemonade. Right. I mean, and, and all yeah. these other people mm -hmm. making lemonade are going to try, be trying to make better lemonade. And then it just becomes very, very difficult to try to stand out in the lemonade business when there's so many people trying to make lemonade. And so it's not just the quality that has to improve, which that, that's sort of a given. We, you also have to just approach the, the business of it from a different way in order to separate yourself from the marketplace. Most people, we, most people say, if I can't make better lemonade, then I'm just going to do something else. Uh, which I don't think is a uh, I don't think is the answer uh, because if 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 God puts you on earth to make lemonade you make lemonade if you're supposed to be a screenwriter you be a screenwriter um, but you have to approach it differently in order to to be competitive.
Now, I know you're about to release your second book, yes. but I wanted to ask you about your first book, sure. which was, was that in 2013? 2013, released? I released uh, Make Your Story Really Stinking Big uh, through Michael WC Productions. And it was funny because uh, when I got to LA, I, was, uh, I didn't go to film school, so I had to self-educate myself. And so Michael WC Productions, like, I loved their line of film books. Uh, primarily because, uh, or at least initially, because they have the best covers. Uh, and I'm like a graphic design guy, so I like like nice, cool covers. I was attracted to their line of, of books and loved their line of books. And then when I decided to publish my book, um, I, I was going to self-publish it, but I uh, just decided on a whim to send it to them, and they ended up picking it up right away and, and published through them. So that was kind of cool. Uh, oh, but wow, yeah, that was 2013 cool. release. Oh, okay. And so, uh, where were you in your life when you decided to write it, and where would you find the spare time? Sure. So, in uh, when I first decided to write that book, was we were we were really me and my, me and my team and the guys I was hooked up with uh, were trying to figure out how to best tell stories that touched multiple mediums and multiple platforms. How do we extend a story across a multitude of mediums in a way where it all works together from new, to form a new experience uh, with the audience? And, and I actually, you know, I was, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I brought some of this with me even from law school. I, I, produced, a, I produced a film while I was in law school. And it was this, uh, just a, you know, it's like a 25 minute uh, short. And I, as the film was being produced, I wrote and produced, I didn't direct it. And as it was being produced, I had an original song uh, produced simultaneously for the film. What was interesting about the film was that the protagonist of the film only has a couple lines during the, the entire film. Just very, he doesn't speak hardly at all. Uh, he's very much like just this internally kind of a guy. So for the song, when I was working with the songwriter for the song, I thought, well, this was going to be a great way to get inside the character's head. So now the song is going to release these internal thoughts that you don't hear, obviously, or know about when you watch the movie. So now the song and the movie will go together in this really interesting way. Um, then I thought, you know, it'd be really cool when we do the music video, if we can use the same sets uh, that, you know, as we're producing the film, we can just either before we, we, uh, we uh, film a scene or after we film a scene before we strike, we can just put the musician in there, film the, uh, the music video, send it, then it's the same look and aesthetic as the, uh, uh, as the movie. Then I thought what would be kind of cool is if we had the actors also in the scenes as well. It's like if they were blocking a scene, uh, then we could have you know them in there and that kind of give it its interesting look. And then I thought, okay, well, if we can shoot the entire scene, the scenes from the movie, maybe from a different angle in the music video, when you watch the music video, you're going to get new information that you don't get from the movie. So now when you watch the music video and the movie together, it's going to give you this full thing. Made my director go crazy, uh, as you can imagine. But I brought that type of thinking with me out here. Uh, you know, I grew up very much into Star Wars, He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, these multi-platform projects. And so I, I've always had a uh, sort of a taste for that. So when we got out here and I tried to do it, it was very difficult. Uh, it, you would think, okay, coming up with a board game thing, coming up with a, a mobile game, uh, an app, a, a comic book that all tie in together wouldn't, wouldn't be that hard, but to have it, to do that well is very difficult. And we failed a couple times and it would, we learned a lot of lessons. So I, put, I hit the pause button and went on about a two-year research project looking at every great multi-platform project that I could find, every 
very poor multi-platform project I could find. And again, used my lawyer super abilities to forensically audit the creative choices that they made, the business choices that made, why did the good ones succeed, why did the bad ones fail? And I was looking for me just a creative rubric to, of how to move forward uh, for me, just for me. And um, you know, and being the genius that I am, I decided to do all the things like the good ones did and not do the ones that the bad ones did. And so uh, I formed a creative process, I guess, a creative rubric that, um, that uh, was just really for me and my own projects and, and, and the team's projects. But I decided, hey, this would be kind of a cool book. Again, I'm trying to figure out how to differentiate myself in the, in the marketplace from all the other competitive people. And I thought, if I've created something that works for me, other people that are trying to solve this problem would benefit from this. And so that's when I published the book. So, so you know, at the same time, I was, uh, you know, I was doing legal consulting while I was out here. I, I was working with, not as a lawyer, but with lawyers on how to best present their, uh, uh, best present their arguments to a jury, uh, how, to, how to incorporate more storytelling, how to incorporate dy dynamic visuals, things like that, uh, and basically trying to help like produce their courtroom performance uh, in, in an interesting way. While I was doing that, I was writing the book. And um, then when I wrote the book, really all I wanted it to be was a business, like a big fat business card for me. Uh, but once the book was released, then other people started calling me who, who, who read the book. Like Mattel called me and said, hey, we read your book. We want you to come in to talk about a project. Uh, the Disney Imagineers say, hey, we, you know, we want you to come talk about it, which is something I never considered. I was just doing this for me and my own projects, but that sort of opened, opened me up to sort of this uh, whole other realm of, of work, which was great when you're stuck in a full-time job. Uh, have other options that are closer to where you want to be is always exciting and, and new. And, and different, and then working with other people on their projects helped me on my own projects, because then you just start to build a facility of diagnosing problems, coming up with quick, quick prescriptions for those problems, um, and you kind of sharpen that tool, so then when you hit your own projects, it's very efficient. Something you said triggered a question I have further down, but I'll, I'll bump it up, and that was, you were talking about the music video yeah. of, of the film that you made while you were in law school, and then I saw a video that you did where you say, when a book turns into a film, then a game, and then a comic book, that's not transmedia, right. it's multimedia. Yeah. So can we talk about how many people think that that is transmedia sure. and, and dispel some of the myths? Yeah, so the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, especially in the 80s, we had this boom of the multimedia franchise. And multimedia is, is the same story that's adapted across multiple mediums. Uh, you know, the, the book becomes the movie, that movie becomes the, the graphic novel, that graphic novel becomes the video game. It's basically the same story and the same plot over and over and over again, just expressed, expressed through multiple mediums. Uh, transmedia is, is sort of this second cousin of that, and where instead of having the Twilight books become the Twilight movie that becomes the Twilight video game that becomes the Twilight graphic novel. Now we have the books that then set up the movie that then lead into the graphic novel that then culminates in the video game. All the different uh, touch points tell a diff completely different story, but in a way to where all the stories work together to tell one big story. And uh, that's, that's a different process, but it was, it was 
birthed out of the, the necessity of, uh, of the marketplace. And now that, you know, in, in, you know, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, uh, the multimedia franchise was fine because uh, there, you know, what else are you gonna do? We didn't have the 8,000 different entertainment options that we have today, it was very limited. And so you were, consumers and audiences were okay with just experiencing the same story over and over and over again because there were very limited amounts of options. Today, we now have you know, 8,000 television channels, we have ca uh, cable, satellite, network, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, we have millions of YouTube videos, we have access to every TV show ever made, every movie ever produced, every book ever written, we have millions of mobile games that are available just in our pocket anytime we want. And so now, when we can entertain ourselves with anything that we want, the marketplace has been going for new stuff rather than repurpose content. So if, if you give a consumer um, the option of a video game where you already know the story and a video game that you don't know the story, now they're opting for uh, the new story. They're opting for the new book. They're opting for the new movie because they just don't want to repurpose the same thing over and over and over again. So when the audiences now demand new, 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 you, you have to figure out how to continually give them new story rather than repurpose story, which then has created this really interesting uh, opportunity in the marketplace, but at the same time, obstacle in the marketplace, because now we have to figure out how to continually tell new stories because the multimedia franchise just isn't performing the way it used to perform. Uh, and so, so and just like any good, in a good capitalistic system, the market is the one that, that pushes toward change. And that's what we've seen over the past 10 years. We can see how transmedia would work for million dollar sort of ad campaign. Sure. But for a low budget film, for somebody that's an independent filmmaker, yeah. maybe working with a six figure budget, sure. um, how can they incorporate transmedia? It seems like it's almost out of the picture for them in some sense. You would think. I mean, this is this. I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions of, of transmedia is that we, you know, and partly it's 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 my fault because I talk about large projects, Star Wars, uh, you know, Harry Potter, uh, you know, things like this. We 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 look toward the, all the Marvel stuff that's going on now. The way they design their projects is tremendous for the audience experience, and the only reason that they do that, the only reason that these projects are rolling out the way they they're rolling out, is because the market has an appetite for it. So, so they're proving the fact that the audience wants that type of a project, something that, that is a never go dark uh, experience. So it, after the movie, I still should be able to go home and ex be able to experience more stories somewhere else. Uh, after the, you know, between episodes of the TV show, I should be able to engage online with some sort of added content. But um, uh, this is what the market wants. So we can establish that. But again, how do how do uh, how does an indie filmmaker how do that if they don't have you know a billion dollars at their disposal? In my perspective, it's all about how do we use the principles of George Lucas? How do we use the principles of Marvel? How do we use the principles of Harry Potter and apply them to to our project, our smaller project, our independent project? That's what fascinates me. I think most about about this because the the law of gravity uh, let's just say the law of lift 
the law of lift over, uh, overcomes the law of gravity in order to make an airplane fly. You look at a 777 that, that picks up out off, the, uh, off the ground and flies into the sky, you, you don't say, well, I have to have a 777 in order to fly. No, you can have a smaller plane, and if you understand the law of lift and the law of gravity and how those work together, if you just understand those principles, your tiny little plane can fly just as much as the, the, the big 777. You may have to gas up more times. You may not, may not be able to go as far, but you can still get in the air. And so, so that's the way I look at it. I look at, you know, uh, Star Wars is the 777. But if the Star Wars is proving to us what the law of lift and what the law of gravity can do, let's take those laws and apply them to our own project. Because I think it's actually more necessary for an independent project to be able to, uh, or an independent producer, an independent screenwriter, to be able to understand the multi-platform world and a transmedia world and what I call a super story model, where because they don't have the P&A budgets, that's what it really breaks down to. The $300,000 picture, the $100,000 picture, they're not going to have the $35 million P&A budget. They're not going to have the $70 million of P&A to be able to let everybody know wh who they are, what their project is, and why they should support it. So they have to approach the marketplace differently. Again, the, the, if, if, if the lemonade stand analogy, if there's a thousand other lemonade stands, not only a thousand other lemonade stands, but a thousand other lemonade uh, enterprises that are much bigger and more expensive and they have better lemons and more money to spend, you have to figure out a different way because you don't have the same, you don't have the same resources. And so if you look at how you advertise, um, you know, it's to get one commercial on one time for 30 seconds on Fox in prime time, $350,000 just for the, not just the production budget of the, of the, uh, of the commercial, just for the, the 30 second hole to display one, one uh, commercial one time. So usually independent filmmakers don't have that to spend. Uh, or if they do, what I say, what would happen if you did one less commercial? What would happen if you took that $350,000 and you would spend it on, on, on something that, that could actually give your fans uh, or people that, uh, that support your project more content? And how do we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? How do we spend the money wiser? And so, you know, for me, I look at something like Moonlight. You know, before Moonlight won an Oscar, it, it, very few people saw it. And Moonlight's a great film. Uh, but if you look at the box office before it won an Oscar and the box office after it won an Oscar, it's very different. It was only, only a few theaters, made a few th hundred thousand, you know, hundred thousand dollars or so. Uh, then after it won a, the Oscar, it got a, the wide release. But you can't, as an independent producer, you can't build a business plan around winning an Oscar. All we got to do is win an Oscar, then we're good. So you got to approach the marketplace differently. And so, so for me, it, I'll take, I want to look at an independent project and say, okay, this independent project, how can I begin to seed uh, interest and awareness and develop pre-awareness before my movie comes out? So the two years that it takes to even produce a film and release a film, uh, you could be already building pre-awareness for it through things like self-publishing a novel. You can release uh, interesting digital content. You can give all your characters in your, in your script 
Twitter accounts and as if they were real people and go ahead and start seeding storylines and create interaction uh, between them months before uh, the film is ever released. You can, um, uh, you can go after different markets and create music content that may give you access to a different target market than the main target market of your movie. And not only that, you can do some of these things that can actually start generating revenue well ahead of the release of the film. So, so for me, the, that is a much better spin than a single commercial that you would spend on the back end. And uh, that, gives, that gives your fan base now more content to dig into and gives you a separation of the marketplace from all the other independent films that are being released. So, so you know, if you, look at, if, you look at, if you look at programs like AMC Independent, where the, you know you can go directly to the exhibitor, uh, with, uh, bypassing the distributor, which is a great program. The way they choose which which uh, projects to put into their AMC indie program is how how are you going to build awareness for your campaign or for your film? How are you going to let people know that you're, that uh, you're there because you're not going to have the distributor paying for the PNA. So, uh, so now you have to have that mechanism to build pre-awareness, but what's cool is after that architecture's out there, any fans that go into the film that haven't seen all the stuff that you've done, even to build pre-awareness, they now can go back, flow backwards and access it. And now it's extended content for them. So now after I see the Moonlight movie, I can go read the Moonlight novel that's a continuation of it. I can then go dig into the, uh, into the comic books that see new storylines. You can use a book of poetry that gives you insight into a whole different character. There's so lots of stuff that you can do understanding the principles of the big guy, but be able to apply it to your independent project in a way that gives you that separation and advantage in the marketplace. That's excellent. Let me just make sure I understand it because I, I still have trouble, sure. you know, wrapping my mind around the concept of transmedia. So it's like building bridges. If we're using this architectural sort yep. of analogy, sure. it's building bridges. It's not repeating the same story over and exactly. over again. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We, you know, for for me, I never want to tell the same story twice. That that's what I, that my goal is. That I go into a transmedia project. I never want to tell the same story twice because the the thing that fans love the most, uh, the the most more than anything, is new story. And, um, you know, I just recently binged all six seasons of Game of Thrones. And after six seasons in a, in a month, all I wanted was more story. And I was searching for more story and searching for more story. I thought about going and reading the books, but I knew the books would pretty much tell me the same story. And so I wanted new stuff. That's what I wanted most of all. And so that's what, that's what fans want. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, my mom bought me, I was a Star Wars fan, and my mom bought me the novelization of the original trilogy, which was great in the, in, you know, in the, in the early 90s. There wasn't a lot of stuff out there. And I, was a good, I was a heavy reader. So she got me the book, I read it, and it was good. It was the same story um, in both places, and so it was okay. But in The Empire Strikes Back, there's a scene in The Empire Strikes Back that where Darth Vader is talking to a group of bounty hunters, and he, he tells them all to go out and catch Han Solo. Boba Fett is the only one who does, and you never see all those other bounty hunters again. One day, my mom bought me a different book called The Tales of the Bounty Hunters, which was a short story anthology following all those other bounty hunters and their adventure trying to catch Han Solo and ultimately how they failed. For me, when I read that as a kid, it, it was revelatory because it was new Star Wars stuff. 
Like it wasn't the same stuff. It was new Star Wars stuff, which was awesome. I, I like completely devoured that book in a couple days uh, because it was new. And, and for the filmmakers, it was a great way, one, to generate new revenue, two, to continually engage an audience in new stuff without having to shoot another movie. So it, for filmmakers, if, if, if filmmakers only think the way to tell stories is through movies, then they won't tell that many stories because it's very, as you know, it's very expensive and difficult to be able to shoot movies all the time. And so even if you spend the rest of your life making movies and you never stop, there's going to be two-year gaps. You know, it's, I mean, it's going to be, when you go into development, uh, pre-production, production, post-production, distribution, it's a two-year cycle to be able to get a movie out into the market. And so if all you did is, is make movies, there's going to be two-year gaps where you're not engaging in the fan base. So now, uh, uh, in, in this oversaturated world of entertainment, not engaging your fans for two, year, two years is a dangerous thing. And so, uh, and so now you have to figure out different ways to engage them. Well, how do I do it if I can't make movies? Well, you, do, you use other things just as much. And so as you're making your movies, let's be feeding our fans new content through all the things that we have at our disposal. Social media content. I'm not talking about advertising through social media. I'm saying, you know, how do we deliver content through social media that extends the story in a valuable way? How do I use uh, digital content? How do I use uh, comic books, self-published novels, music, art? Uh, you know, uh, fine art, you can do sculptures, you can do poetry, you can do anything that can tell a story, stage plays, TV, whatever you want, all the options are out there that one can give your audience more engagement and more story, which they love more than, more than anything else. And two, it gives your investors more of an opportunity to capture revenue. And so one of the biggest obstacles for, uh, for an independent artist is how do you find investment money? How, how does the independent investor uh, look at your movie and find that it's a good business model? And, and what we've seen now is the investment, the, the pools of investment money is drying up rather quickly. It's very difficult to be able to uh, go out and get the, the amount of money that we need to create these films because the business model doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. There's been too much disruption in the marketplace. It creates, it costs too much to, to, to advertise for a film. I mean, Steven Soderbergh was just, he just had a, uh, uh, an, an interview where he said, just to be a blip on the radar, now you have to have $35 million of domestic P&A, $35 million of international P&A, just to be a blip on the radar to let people know you're there because there's so much competition. There's too many lemonade stands in the neighborhood. And which means that's $70 million of P&A. To recoup, to recoup your P&A, it's 50 cents on a dollar. So all of a sudden to recoup that $70 million of P&A, you have to make $140 million. Add in, let's say, let's say you have a million dollar production budget, then it's $141 million break even on a $1 million picture. So imagine yourself as a businessman. I go to uh, I go to you and say, uh, I say, Karen, will you invest in my script for a million dollars? We can make this amazing film together. And all we have to do is make 141 million, and you get all your money back. <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And so now people say, well, well, uh, well, I won't do any PNA then. I'll just you know don't go won't go through a distributor and just self you know self distribute or whatever. That now if you don't have 
if you don't have another plan of how to build awareness for your project and engage an audience, it, th that's maybe even more dangerous than the first route. Or you may, uh, you may say, well, I'll cut back on the P&A, you know, and it's just a game of how far can I cut back uh, and still be able to survive. So for me, if we can figure out a different way forward to say, to, an to, to go to an investor and say, here is how we're going to give you a different business model. Here's how we're going to give you an opportunity to recoup faster and to recoup more and recoup over a longer period of time. And so now instead of just one revenue stream that I can generate that you can recoup, which is the movie, it's going to be the main one. Now there's going to be four or five additional ways that you can recoup. And not only that, as we wait our two years before you recoup, start recouping from the movie, you'll be recouping in these other two ways that are going to hit the marketplace a lot earlier. So you'll be recouping your, your investment well before the movie even hits the market, which is great. And instead of the two to five year window that you'll have to, to recoup the bulk of your investment from the film, now we can build it to where there's a 15 year window because after the movie gets out and it has this two year window to generate the revenue, then we're gonna release this and then we're gonna release this and then we're gonna release this. And that's gonna bridge the gap uh, up until the time we maybe wanna release a different film. And, uh, and you're gonna be play a part in all that. So here's product diversification, we have a product line diversification. We have multiple streams of revenue. We're hitting not just one or two markets. Now we're going to hit seven markets for a longer period of time. When you start to position yourselves like that, now it becomes a better business decision for the investor, which is better for the independent producer because somebody has to pay for your movie. Because then a lot of people say to me, well, I'll just do Kickstarter. Kickstarter is the savior of the independent, of the independent film. You know, 90% of films that are on Kickstarter don't get funded at all, get zero dollars. And it's so sad. And, and, and it's just, there's that much stuff out there. The 10% that do get funded, get funded at, on an average of $12,000. And to make, a, to make a career as an independent filmmaker, we can't, we have to, we have, our vision has to be greater than $12,000 movies. Listen, if you get $12,000 to make a movie, God bless you, that's awesome. I'm not saying I'm not. I don't want to diminish that accomplishment, but it's. Uh, but ultimately, we don't want to have to be baristas as we, as we uh, make movies. We don't want to have to have our day job and shoot on the weekends. As you do the grind, that's awesome. That's what you should do. But we need now a bigger vision and a better business model to be able to have a new way forward. You know, I, I like to say at some point. At some point. The light bulb wasn't invented by the continuous improvement of the candle. At some point, somebody had to say, okay, the candle's great. God bless the candle, candle's awesome. But we now need to kind of build a different model to be able to get a bigger result. And so now we've seen independent films being diminished in the marketplace. And, and the answer to that isn't just writing it better or shooting it better. Of course, you need to write it well and shoot it well, but we also need to build a different architecture around it so it can be sustainable and, and have an advantage in the marketplace, especially how we, how we communicate it to, a, to a, uh, uh, an investor. I just had a filmmaker go to me for a, he, he, had, he wanted to raise $10,000 for a short film. That's all he wanted to do. He said, do you think there's any transmedia potential here? I looked at it and we, we kind of worked together for about a day and uh, I kind of added a few tricks to it and, and kind of built out the IP. And he went, 
talked to this investor who was going for a $10,000 investment. He walked away with a $230,000 investment uh, because all of a sudden, it, the whole thing made more sense. Wow. Business sense. Right. And so uh, and so that now he was so happy as an independent filmmaker uh, saying now I can actually shoot my short, shoot these other things. I actually can go into pre-production on my feature. My investor can be being paid back based on these other two things and now has an equity stake in the feature film as we move forward, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he was super excited. And all he's all we did is he's using the principles of Star Wars the principles of Harry Potter, the principles of, the, of Marvel, and building that into his independent film business plan that separates him in the marketplace. Houston, I'm wondering if you could just define for me prints and advertising, P&A, yeah. just so I can fully understand. Sure, mm -hmm. uh, P&A, prints and advertising, is the, way, is the way to build awareness. It's basically the marketing for a film. It's, uh, uh, people don't use prints as much anymore. Uh, the prints is being changed to more digital stuff. Uh, so, so the A in P&A is, I think, the, 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 the large case A, the uppercase A, and the small P. Um, but it's how a distributor builds awareness for the film and makes sure the film, everybody knows about the film. And and, uh, and so that's great because in an oversaturated world, you need to be able to let people know that you exist. I mean, today, access, access to people isn't an issue. It's not, that's no longer a problem because of the internet. I can shoot a movie, I can put it on YouTube, I can put it on Vimeo, I can put it on, up on the internet in a hundred different ways, and instantly, I'm in three billion people's pockets around the world. So now, like access to people is not an issue ever, ever again. More likely, like that's not a problem. The problem is how do if I if my movie's in your pocket or in your purse, how do you know it's there? And so that that's really the biggest issue right now. And so they think, well, all we can do is make sure we pump up our P&A to have these ex exorbitant P&A budgets. And uh, that's the way to let people know that they're there. But in an era where people hate advertising, people hate marketing, we, we, we invent technology just to skip ads. Uh, and and I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not the only one that when I'm watching a YouTube video and I'm, there's an ad on before the video, I'm just staring at the bottom right-hand corner ready to click as soon as it hits zero, right? Like we, we're trained to avoid advertising. And so th then, when everybody's trying to avoid advertising, the studios say, well, we'll just do more advertising. We'll do more advertising. Uh, we'll do more advertising and just oversaturate, oversaturate, so you can't escape it. But then people will always try to escape it. My, my perspective is, is how do you engage them in different ways? And let's, let's, let's take the, the, uh, the purpose of P&A. Uh, which is building awareness, building pre-awareness, making sure that there's a there's an audience that is built to 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 show up on opening day or the first two weekends. How do we how do we accomplish that through a more effective way? Because it's not always about just throwing money after money after money after money in some of these ineffective ways. Uh, it's about how do we think a little bit differently and engage the marketplace in a different way. And what we know now is people love story. People love entertainment. People love characters. We live in an entertainment society. You know, everybody always talks about the uh, diminished uh, attention span of people today because there's so many options. You know, every, uh, I heard someone say recently that people have a 
have lower attention, uh, attention spans lower than a goldfish, right? Like, you know, cause we're, there's so much stuff and that, and that's why people don't want to watch advertising. Cause we just, we get distracted too easily. I don't necessarily believe that because man, I get what they're saying, but the same people that they say have attention spans lower than that of a goldfish, they'll binge watch 10 hours of house of cards on the, on the weekend that it's released. And so they can zero in and watch House of Cards for 10 hours on their couch, focused, engaged. They'll sit there and binge watch, you know, uh, uh, 13 Reasons Why. They'll, they'll rip through six seasons of Game of Thrones in a month because of course you would. I'll, I'll watch all seven Star Wars movies back to 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 back up until episode eight is released in a giant marathon. We can focus, we can engage, and, and but, we can now choose what we focus and engage into. And so all we have to do is provide other mechanisms for people to, to engage. And if you can provide other mechanisms that are engaging, then all of a sudden we can accomplish the, the, the purpose of P&A, but in a way that is more valuable for the audience and even a way that can, uh, that can even drive additional revenue. So that, that's really what I'm, uh, th that fascinates me about this model is how, how we can attack, how can we attack the whole problem that's surrounding independent filmmaking and, and storytelling in general? How can we just kind of attack it in a different way that's more rewarding for fans and more rewarding for filmmakers? You mentioned briefly that finding production for an independent film is harder these days. Hasn't it always been difficult? It absolutely has always been difficult. It's never been easy. Uh, but what's happened is it's an already difficult task has become more difficult because, because to really engage investors and businessmen and businesswomen, you actually have to make the whole, the whole venture make business sense. Now, there, there are always gonna be some investors that, that have discretionary disposable income that you know can just believe in your project and and dump money into it whether or not they they get a uh, they get a, a return or not there's always going to be that marginal group that you know hey you put my granddaughter in your movie then yeah I'll, I'll, I'll put a hundred thousand dollars in sure you know and uh, or they just like believe in the purpose of your project and they'll dump it in that that is a rarity uh, uh, and what we have to do is we have to approach the business of filmmaking from a perspective of an investor and learn what motivates an investor, learn the value propositions behind the business model so that they can feel comfortable with, uh, with giving you their, um, you know, their money that they've worked very hard on uh, or hard for. And you now, once they give you your money, you as a filmmaker have what, the, what I'll give you a law school term, uh, is, is called a fiduciary responsibility. You have a fiduciary res responsibility, which is a legal and ethical responsibility to be able to re uh, take care of that money, take care of the investment, and do everything that you can to, to get a return on that investment. And, and so it's, it's not a, I never take anybody that, that gives me money lightly at all. It's, 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 one of the highest compliments and one of the, the biggest responsibilities that you have as a filmmaker. And so now you have to, you have, in order to get that, you have to have the whole thing make business sense. So you have to imagine what, what motivates an investor. 
it's it, it's probably not your three act structure. It's probably not your really amazing B story plot. It's not your your interesting subplots. It's not your plot twist in your act three. It's how do you get them a return on investment? It's it's the amount of ROI, the return on investment. It's how long is this going to be in the marketplace? Is this a short-term investment or is there a, is it a long-term investment? It's uh, how big is the market that you're trying to attack? Is it you know very small or is it very large? There's the, there's these things that we're trying to that we have to try to figure out. Filmmakers hate this stuff because they're creatives, right? That's why usually filmmakers need good, you know, directors and writers need good producers because producers can think this way. But what, from my perspective, is if a creator, if, a, if, a, if the writers and the directors, if you can be thinking this way from the beginning then, and approach the creative decisions that you make in your, in, in your story in such a way that optimizes your IP, your script, your project for larger investment and larger um, uh, revenue potential, all of a sudden that's the best because you're not just leaving it to the quote unquote bean counters to figure out. You're not leaving it to a producer to sell the investment. The creative is optimized for the, uh, for the investment. For example, going back to the, the, uh, the, the, um, the principles of George, George Lucas. Darth Vader, this, the scene in Empire Strikes Back where Darth Vader's talking to the bounty hunters could have been between Darth Vader and Boba Fett. There didn't have to be any other characters there. Just Darth Vader saying, Boba Fett, go catch Han Solo. But Lucas made the creative decision in the story to have Boba Fett and eight other bounty hunters there in that scene. Now, what that did, that creative decision then spurred a whole other product that was part of the business plan, which was this anthology of short stories that existed in the marketplace to engage the fan base and generate revenue. That all was, was premised and created and birthed out of the creative decision of the writer and director to have multiple characters in the scene. So, so a, lot of, a lot of times there's been this divide, this, this thinking that there's a divide between the creative and the business. But if the creative can understand the business and create in a way that optimizes, it, optimizes the project for the business, then there's so much more opportunity out there because if, if it's not built right creatively, then that will maximize or, or, or limit the type of business opportunities that you have down the road. And so, uh, so if you can just build the project right, present it right to, a, to an investor, and it makes business sense. You know, I, I was talking to an investor in Canada recently who uh, I, I, we were part of a project and, and I call him, he's this big time angel investor. He has 10,000 angel investors underneath him and his network of angel investors. This guy's a big guy. And uh, I, I got on the phone with him. He said, hey, Houston, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you uh, 10 minutes. And I said, okay. He said, I charge $10,000 an hour for my uh, business consultation. I, uh, I don't speak anywhere for less than $25,000 uh, you know, per event. And it's not fair to all those people that pay all that money that I give you a bunch of free time. But because we had a little bit of relationship because we spoke at this, a similar event, you know, few years prior. Uh, he said, I'll give you 10 minutes free. 
And I said, okay. He's a guy who's like straight business guy, right? He, uh, uh, I said, well, I want to hear to talk to you about this uh, film project that we have going on. And he stopped me 90 seconds in. He said, listen, he said, out of my 10,000 angel investors, I could probably only think of four who would even consider investing into entertainment at all. And uh, he said, it's just too risky. He said, you pro if you get a return, you're only gonna get a return for about a year and a half after its release. Uh, it's just, it's a difficult market and a difficult invest investment to make. But maybe there's four. And if everything goes well, you may be able to get $150,000 to $100,000 out of each of them. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at a you know, $200,000, $250,000 investment if all goes really super well. And I said, well, I appreciate that. But really what we want to do is this isn't just going to be a film project. This is going to be what we call a super story. It's going to be a, this large scale transmedia project that's going to have, you know, all these different things uh, as, as a part of it. And I sat there and talked to him one for 90 minutes. And, uh, and I started talking about the different revenue uh, opportunities, the different markets that we're going to touch, the different, uh, the shelf life of the project, how we're going to build pre-awareness while the movie is going to be being produced, how we're going to take some things that would, we're going to shift some things in the advertising budget to more content story stuff that we can release simultaneous to the film. So we can ex extend the experience. Then we're going to release other things after the film that's going to bridge the gap to the next film. And he said, he said to me, he said, in 30 years of investment, no one's ever approached me with an entertainment pitch that, is, that has sounded like this. He said, this sounds like a franchisable business more so than it does a movie. He said, based on this, I think we could do two rounds of financing. I think we could do a $75 million round of financing and a second round of $50 million. I could probably give you access to 4,000 of my angels. And he said, because now it makes business sense. And, uh, and, and I didn't even get in to talk to him about the creative. This guy doesn't care about my characters. He doesn't care about the, the story. He cares about the model of it. And, but the the creative decisions were the things that created those opportunities for those other products and other things. So it goes, it works together. Um, so you can never really separate it. And so, it, it, you know, that just shows you, and like the other example, the, the guy that going out after the $10,000 uh, investment, getting a $231,000 investment, that's the other end of the spectrum, but the result is very similar. One thing doesn't make business sense, but when you can now create a project that makes business sense, now it, uh, everything makes much more sense. And what it, it does, it hedges the investment, makes the investment more secure because all investors are risk averse. They, they, they don't want to just throw their money away. And so if you can make them more comfortable with the fact that the, the investment is secure, now they said, okay, this is, you know, I'm part of this for the long term. There's here, there's opportunity here, 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 and here. Now it just makes a lot more sense for them. And, and, and you know, and then you increase, it's still difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's still difficult, but you just increase the chances for success and also separate yourself from the marketplace. And so, you know, Tim Kring, the guy that created Heroes, um, he just got a $50 million investment into a transmedia company that he started with another guy here in town called Zach Hassan. They, they created a whole transmedia company and they went to an oil man in Texas. And this oil man said, I've never 
uh, invested in entertainment ever in my whole life, but when they approached me with this transmedia model, it made business sense. And so, and so he you know, dumped $50 million into their venture. And so what it, what it does is, is it gives you access uh, to, to a different type of investment and to more investors when you can really understand how, how markets work, how we can get more audience, how we can get different types of audience, how, you know, uh, how we can diversify income, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this sounds very uncreative. Right, I mean, you know, I can see like screenwriters watching this video are probably <laughs> cringing right now. But what was really interesting is, is none of these other opportunities uh, of the tie-ins or the spin-offs or the other products that you can, that you can uh, surround your project with, that, those won't be possible or at least possible in a good way if you don't create the story to be able to optimize it for that. Go back to that Lucas example. He made the creative decision to have eight characters in a scene rather than two. That then fueled hundreds of thousands of dollars worth, worth of revenue and an engagement opportunity for the fan base. So, so the story drives the business. Let's take Close Encounters of the Third Kind sure. and, and Star Wars. Let's say they both came out around the same time. Did. Why did one have a longer shelf life and the other one is just this amazing nostalgic film that those of us at that time remember fondly. It's fascinating to look at that case study because, yeah, you have two films that had similar budgets, both had similar type of filmmakers, they were targeting a very similar audience, they were released at the same time, like everything is the same. One becomes a really good movie that people love and actually did pretty well, Close Encounters and the Third Kind. Another uh, becomes a $50 billion brand. And so what, there's a variable in there somewhere that created that separation in the marketplace. And uh, we, we, can, we can look at that and probably guess pretty closely why that happened. Uh, there's a book that I read recently called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, where they ask Steven Spielberg this exact same question. And uh, b because him and, him and Lucas would actually give each other producer points on, the, on all of their movies. And so, so uh, Lucas had producer points on Close Encounters, Spielberg had, had producer points on Star Wars. Obviously, uh, Spielberg got a better part of that deal. Uh, but, and they said, well, why, you know, why did it work out so well uh, for Lucas and, and you know, pretty well for you, but it's not even in the same ballpark? He said, there's two reasons. He said, from the beginning, Lucas approached this project not as just a single film. He always had a broader vision. He understood that there was a story before this, there's gonna be a story after this. Maybe he didn't have all the things planned out exactly and have it all worked out, but his vision was very big from the beginning. And secondly, he said he had a world that people wanted to explore. He had a story world. He said, I never even gave any uh, a thought of my story world. I, the, uh, the, the setting of Close Encounters is our world that's just being invaded by aliens. But what he did, he created a world that people wanted to continue to explore. And, and, and if you can create a world and an IP, an intellectual property, that people want to continue to explore, then all of a sudden that then makes the room for the other things that you want to do. And so, you know, what's really interesting about Lucas in the same book is that he didn't grow up wanting to be a filmmaker. He, want, he grew up wanting to be an architect. And he, he worked at his dad's toy store every summer as a kid. And so he approached filmmaking not from a filmmaking standpoint. He approached it from an architectural and 
toy standpoint. And, and, and he still went into make a good movie, of course, but he then approached it, the, the industry and the creative and the writing of it in a completely different way that then fueled all these opportunities. If you look at from the original Star Wars movie, the, uh, the cantina scene where Luke and Obi-Wan, they go into the cantina and there's all those crazy aliens around and they, this is where they find Han Solo for the first time. There was, there was a very specific choice of, of, I want these crazy aliens all around. They could have had, to, to cut back on budget, they could have had everybody look human like Luke if they wanted to. But instead, he really made sure that every single character in that bar and in that cantina look, had a very distinctive look, that they, they, they seemed mysterious, that they, it was obvious that all of them had some sort of backstory involved. And just that creative, one, the writing decision, Two, the directorial decision, if you watch the scene, the way they made sure they got shots of all of them. There were interesting ones in the foreground, in the background. They took time in the, in the edit of the film to, to cut, 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 and show a handful of them. Then those creative opportunities, both in the writing, the directing, and the editing, then fueled short stories and video games and cartoons that dealt with all of them. They created web content for all of them. They created game content for all of them. And they created toys for all of them. So now, uh, all of a sudden, where most filmmakers and directors would say, my scene is about my protagonist and my antagonist and the, the characters, our central characters, everything else is background. Lucas never considered anybody background. He looked at all these other characters as potential stories, potential stories, potential stories that just so happened to be in the background of this scene. But I'm going to develop all of them as if they could be the heroes of their own story and then put them in the background. So, so now the creative mindset is different when he approaches a story. So how do we do that as independent filmmakers on my $100,000 feature? Well, all of a sudden, the roommate of your protagonist now that's just in the background on a few different scenes, now you should take the time to think, how do I make that guy interesting or that girl interesting? How do I give them an interesting look or an interesting backstory? How do I make them, if, how could I make them the protagonist of their own story? I'm gonna develop them as if they're, they could be, and then I'll go back and put them in the background. Now, when I approach my short film, this really interesting, weird, uh, eclectic character is now in there that could then spur a whole companion novel. Maybe it's an EP of music. Maybe it's a whole social media account where this crazy character is tweeting back and forth at le leading up or after the film. There's lots of different things using the principles that you see from Lucas and now applying that into your, your specific smaller project. Houston, with your first book, Make Your Story Really Stinkin' Big, is this sort of an entrepreneurial view of storytelling or do you also cover craft and technique? Both. I, I think that it, you need to approach storytelling from an entrepreneurial mindset um, just so that you can, as a writer and a producer and a creator, you can, you can have more, uh, you can be empowered more rather than I'm going to write something and then I'm going to push it out and now I'm at the mercy of the entertainment gods to do whatever they want with my stuff. If you approach it from an entrepreneur mindset, you can now have more opportunity to take control of, of your work. Uh, but here's, here's the trick, is that if you don't approach everything you do with craft and technique, 
then your products won't be good. And so in, in a transmedia uh, business model, we have a diversified product line of not just the film, but a film plus this, plus this, plus this, that all work together for one amazing experience. If you, if, if you don't perfect your craft and technique for all of them, then all of a sudden uh, nothing's gonna work. And it doesn't matter how good your business model is, if your stories aren't good and people don't care about them and people don't engage with your characters, and if, if your products aren't good, your business isn't good. And so there's, it's an interesting balance of, of understanding the entrepreneurial model and then being able to harness the craft and technique for the individual products within that model. That's the sweet spot of how, of how to make the whole thing work. Because a lot of people say, well, you know what, do you think every movie needs transmedia? Do you think every, can't you just leave room for a film that, that doesn't need it? Uh, because, you know, does, does, did Hemingway really need to franchise Old Man in the Sea? Did, uh, you know, d does Moonlight really need, uh, you know, transmedia extensions? And, and because typically, any offshoot that you have of an original work isn't as good as the original. And, you know, if you have sort of the companion this and the spin off this and the tie in this, sometimes they're just not as good. And they actually diminish, they can diminish the original work because you surrounded it with this crap. And, uh, and, and I can't argue that necessarily, that, that that doesn't happen because it does. This is why the creators need to approach the, the, the transmedia model and every touch point of that model with the, the, the craft and the technique and, and to make sure that everything is great. Because if you tell me that not, not everything needs, you know, Manchester by the sea, like does that really need, you know, a first person shooter that goes along with it? Uh, well, maybe not a first person shooter, uh, but, but maybe there is a book of poetry that goes along with it. Maybe there's a novel that goes along with it. Maybe there's a, a, a companion album. This, different than the soundtrack, an album that tells a story from another character's perspective that, that adds to the story in a really interesting way. Maybe things that fit the brand, maybe it could use that. Because what, you tell, what you're telling me when you say not everything needs transmedia, this is what you're really telling me. You're telling me that audience doesn't need more of your story. And you're also telling me that your investors don't need any more money. And neither one of those things should be true. The, the, highest, the highest compliment uh, for an artist, for a filmmaker, is for an audience to say, I love what you did and I want more of it. It's the highest compliment you can ever receive. Not just it was great, it was great and I want more. It's the highest compliment you can get. And so for you as a filmmaker, you have to try to figure out how do I give them more? How do I give them more? How do I continue to cultivate and engage my fan base, but it's too expensive to be able to do movies all the time? So now we have to look at the rest of our toolkit. I mean, imagine going to a, imagine going to a restaurant and you have the most amazing entree you've ever had in your life, life-changing life meal. And you call the waiter over and you say, I love this, I'm still hungry, it was the greatest meal I've ever had, I wanna order something else off the menu. And they say, absolutely not. You say, well, that's kind of weird because I'm still hungry. I want more. Can I order maybe a dessert? Nope. Can I order an appetizer? Absolutely not. Well, why? Because I have money in my pocket that I want to give you because I love the first meal so much. Well, the chef feels, the chef feels that if he gives you anything else, it could diminish the experience of the first.
So the chef thinks you, should, you need to be happy with this one thing, <laughs> right? Now it doesn't make sense for, in, in a consumer arena to have that conversation. But if we now port that back over into entertainment, that's the conversation we're having. You're telling me that this audience member that says, I love the first thing I want more, then that you're telling me, you know what? Me, the chef, the filmmaker, I don't feel like any, you should have anything else. I think because it could diminish the experience of the first, so you just need to be happy. That's not a way to build, to build a brand. It's not a way to build a business. It's not a way to build an audience base. I would never go back to that restaurant. But here's how, if, if, that, if I somehow convinced them to bring me another dish, and then there was a, there was a hair in it, or a, a fingernail in it, or something awful, then maybe it would diminish the experience of the first. And that's what we've all experienced in multimedia franchises, you know, even, uh, even some transmedia franchises, where the, where the creators create the first thing, and then for all the other stuff, they leave it to other people. They license it out through a license model. They just like, and, and, they, and all those other things aren't approached with the same passion, technique, and care that the original was. And then it does diminish the value of the first. So to be able to take care of this, to take advantage of this model, now the creator needs to have this mindset from the beginning so that they can now approach those other things with the same technique and the same craft. Uh, and, and, and now when they get the second dish and they get the third dish and the fourth dish, they're just as, as good, if not better than the original. And, and then the, the, the experience is actually enhanced rather than diminished. So for example, Quentin Tarantino, when Quentin Tarantino did Django Unchained, uh, there, was a, there was a multimedia comic book that was uh, produced that was Django the comic book. It was the same story in both places and um, and it wasn't very good and people were complaining about it and they, they was just, it was just very, very poorly put together. Well, later Quentin Tarantino uh, released the official sequel to Django Unchained. So the official sequel to Django Unchained isn't a movie, it's actually a comic book that was the story was created by Quentin Tarantino himself and it's called Django slash Zorro. So it's a Zorro Django crossover that's the official sequel to the movie Django Unchained but the story, one, it's new story so it, it continues the story of, of Django but the story was created and cultivated and designed by Quentin Tarantino and then he just had comic book people put it, put it together because he doesn't know comic books. But he worked with the team and made sure that the craft, the passion, and the technique that he put into the original film was then put into this transmediated extension. And then all of a sudden, th where the fans hated the first comic book, they loved the second comic book because not only was it new story, but it was new story that was crafted by the creator in the same way he crafted the original. So that's a very long way to, to answer the question, but, it, but it, it's an intersection of both. It's an entrepreneurial mindset for the business model, and then, and then how you execute within that business model is with craft and technique at every single touch point to work together. That, I think, is the sweet spot. When you talk about the entrepreneurial aspects of building a story or a franchise, what are some of the counterpoints that students or people that have read your book say? Yeah. And also, too, what are the age groups of the people that are countering your 
stance. Yeah, the, they, that the, uh, the the people that, that sort of push back against yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so the big the, the biggest pushback is is what what I was just talking about is the biggest pushback is always it's going to diminish it's going to diminish the, the, the beginning, you know, it's going to diminish the first thing. It's going to diminish the first experience that they have. And, but for me, it's look, that, that looks at the, the whole situation from a, I don't want to say a selfish point of view, but it, it, it's looking at it just from a filmmaker's perspective and not from an audience perspective. There's a, there's a school of thought, a philosophy out there called phenomenology and phenomenology states that the highest achievement of the artist isn't the creation of the art itself. It's actually the experience that the audience has with the art. Is, that's the highest achievement that you can get. And so a lot of, if, if, a painter that, that paints a painting, um, once he's finished with the painting, that's, that's not the highest achievement that, that, that he has. It's only until someone has an experience with the painting that you actually have ever achieved something. So if you create a, a painting that no one ever sees, if you write a book that no one ever reads or makes a, make a movie that no one ever watches, uh, according to phenomenology, you actually haven't created anything. Uh, that's just the first step. And to be a phenomenal filmmaker or a phenomenal creator, you have to create things that people have these dynamic experiences with, which means you have to be thinking of the audience and the audience's experience with your brand and your project from the beginning. And that's a very different mindset that most filmmakers have. They think of what's the story I want to tell and the, in the way I want to tell it. And it's all about me and my vision. And, and it's very insular in the way they approach the project because it's, it's, it's their craft and their art. But to be a phenomenal filmmaker, you have to say, what's the story I want to tell and how do I want to tell it? But you always have in the back of your mind or maybe in the front of your mind, how ultimately is the audience going to be experiencing it? And what does the audience want? And, uh, and, and it's the balance of those two that can move you out of just being a filmmaker to a phenomenal filmmaker. And so what the audience wants right now is they want more story. They want more of this amazing world that you created, more of these amazing characters that you've created. And, uh, and we have to now figure out how to deliver more and more and more story to them but in a way that doesn't diminish the original work. And, it, and, and I'm not saying this is easy. Uh, th this, this causes you to now not just think of a two-hour story. It, it, you know, when you're making a movie, you're thinking of 120 pages and that's it and I'm done. Now that's just step one. Now I got to think almost like in a television mindset of where I, I'm not just creating the pilot episode, I'm creating the pilot episode the rest of the first season and seven seasons from here on out. And so now you're thinking of 100 stories rather than one. And so now you have to have that sort of facility to say, how do I tell a hundred stories that spin off of my movie? Because this is what my audience wants. And so that, that, that's the trick and that's the big pushback. Another pushback is I don't know how to do the other stuff. I don't know how to make comic books. I don't know how to make music. I don't know how to make any of this stuff. Well, the, the, good, the good thing is that there are people who do in every industry, every creative industry out here 
there are people that are looking for collaborations and partnerships and because they're trying to figure out how to break in as well. So you can find, you know, you throw a rock in any direction in Hollywood, you're, you're, you're going to hit a screenwriter, you throw another <laughs> rock in another direction, you're going to hear somebody trying to break into the music industry, somebody's trying to break into the, the, uh, to the uh, uh, as a playwright into the stage industry, you're going to, somebody's trying to break into animation and design, and all of a sudden, if I'm trying to break in in film and you're trying to break in in music, then if I go to you and say, listen, here's an opportunity to, to collaborate and I have this movie I'm trying to get made. If, if we can figure out how to, how to partner on a musical extension that's going to extend the story in a really dynamic way and maybe we can shoot music videos that sort of coincide and then he is an animation guy and so maybe he can create animated music videos for the music that you then create and then all this works around the movie that I'm going to create. Now we can create this really interesting transmedia project and all and all uh, benefit from the partnership because we're leveraging each other. You know, uh, fire ants are really interesting. Is uh, where uh, I was watching this nature video where fire ants uh, in, in the Amazon when it floods, fire ants they they uh, they clip their jaws together and they hold on to each other, and they create these massive like it looks like a raft uh, that that floats on top of the water individually the fire ants will drown in the flood but as soon as they see the water com coming they latch their jaws on create a raft and they all float on top and that in, in, a, in an industry as competitive as Hollywood where we it's not just filmmakers it's filmmakers and authors and musicians and everybody in between when when the, the water is rushing all the time the way for us to succeed, especially when we're trying to break in, isn't just to insulate ourselves individually. It, I, I feel like it's, it's cross-platform, uh, multidisciplinary teams of people. Let's lock our jaws together and figure out how we can float together on top of the water rather than just drowned individually. So, so I think there's collaborations out there to be made that can help, uh, uh, that, can help that problem. And two, we're all good at we're all good at lots of things. Uh, in today's world, it's very difficult to find somebody who only does one thing, especially younger people, right? Anybody that's, that's especially under thirty, they've grown up in a world where that you know everybody can take pictures because the phones, you know, the smartphone. Uh, everybody's a hobby photographer at this point. You know, you're you're an Instagram photographer. Everybody knows how to make a movie and edit it, kind of. Everybody knows how to, you know, using GarageBand or something on a Mac. They know how to uh, uh, create a song and, and and produce a song to some extent. We all know how to maybe probably we could probably all figure out how to launch a website in some way using online web materials. And so all of a sudden, if you really think about it, we all have facilities in five or six different ways that we could probably figure out how to create some of this stuff ourselves if we had to. And so uh, we can create a website companion to our movie that extends the story in a valuable way and at the same time have an Instagram account for, uh, from the perspective of one of the characters in the movie that disappears in Act 1 and doesn't reappear in Act 2 all of a sudden, uh, or maybe they reappear in Act 3, then where are they all through Act 2 is now told on the Instagram account. And so that, that now the Instagram account is working with the movie that's also working with the website. And you can do all that your stuff yourself because we're all pretty good at everything. Right, and so those are the two biggest, the two biggest uh, uh, pushbacks is is I don't want to diminish the original work, and I don't know how to do everything, and and I don't have I don't have the money to do it, 
that's the third biggest thing is I don't have the money to do it. Well, it's, it's the, with these boxes that are in our pockets you know, that, that shoot 4K resolution, that, that we all have a garage band on our, on our, on our uh, phones and on our laptops. Like we, can, we all have access to social media that's completely for free. We should be able to shoot, create, and extend stories completely for free. Maybe we're not making big motion pictures, maybe we're not making platform video games, but there should be a way for everybody on a zero budget to be able to continue to engage their, their audience or even establish an audience in a dynamic way completely for free. I knew these guys that created a podcast and uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to launch an independent movie and uh, that was sort of this, uh, it was about this crazy, wacky, kind of haunted town. And it was this really weird thing. This gonna, uh, they shopped it around, they couldn't get it, they couldn't get any traction on it. So they went and created a, a podcast. And the podcast is, uh, is from the perspective of the, the, of the radio DJ in that town. And he just, and he talks about like the crazy things that happen in the town, the different characters, they interview some of the characters on there. And it's just this weekly podcast that gives sort of the weekly news of the crazy town. The, the podcast has blown up to where they have hundreds of thousands of subscribers to this podcast. What they've done now is they've established pre-awareness for their project. And now they take the couple hundred thousand loyal audience that they have for the podcast and have leveraged that into a film deal because wow. there's a, they've proved the marketplace is ready for this project, right? And so and to, to create a podcast, is, is, it costs zero money, completely zero dollars, right? And so, and so they just recognize the tool. And I'm not talking about a podcast that where you're talking about your movie. Right, right. It's like it's, <laughs> it, there's a difference between in-world and out-of-world. When we're talking, what I'm talking about transmedia is in-world extensions. So we're extending, we're inside the world, and we're extending the story in various ways. I'm not talking about behind-the-scenes cast and crew interviews and things. Those are valuable and valuable in different ways. Typically, they're valuable after something's been released. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when, when really we're talking about transmedia and super story and these things like this, we're talking about getting inside the world and extending in valuable ways. And so, and there's so many tools at our disposal that we don't even know that are there that that could we can use to be able to extend. And, and I was watching the, uh, the pilot episode of Better Call Saul there was a, a, a character who wanted Saul Goodman to be his uh, lawyer. And so Saul Goodman didn't want to be his lawyer because this guy was sort of this uh, mean criminal kind of a guy. So this guy writes his phone number on a matchbook and uh, throws it on the, uh, on the desk and say, call me. And for me, being a transmedia guy, I pause the TV and I call the number because of course I would. And <laughs> I call the number and I get the character's voicemail. Wow. Right? That's and so, so doing little things like that, you can do almost for free, very inexpensive, and very easily yourself. Right? Now when you say, okay, I'm going to create my, I'm going to write my book and, uh, or I'm going to release my movie, I'm going to now implant these things into the scene where people can just use their cell phones, call the different numbers, get the different number, uh, the, the character's voicemails, be able to leave them voicemails, be able to listen to their voicemails, and be able to set, you know, set up uh, these fake phone numbers, you can do you can do one phone number for a year for like 14 bucks that just goes to a voicemail. It's very inexpensive, but, but at the same time, very valuable to the fan base. 
and it just kind of makes it feel different. It's like, wow, this is cool. I'm like doing this really interesting thing. So, so there's lots of tools that we can use that we just don't know are there uh, that are very expensive. You don't need you don't need the Star Wars budget to be able to use the principles of Star Wars. Right? You don't you don't need this stuff. We just need the we just need the principles to understand the rubric, and now we use so those low cost. Uh, uh, those low-cost tools to be able to attack the marketplace in a very different way. Houston, with your current book, Make Your Story Really Stinking Big, you have a chapter entitled Build Your Characters a House to Live In. Yes. Can we talk about a little bit that entails? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what, what's interesting now is uh, it, from a transmedia perspective, from a superstore perspective, the, the Producers Guild of America has ratified a transmedia producer credit. And they, they ratified that a few years ago. And they say you need three storylines and at least three mediums that all operate in one narrative universe. And that one narrative universe is what I call a story world. And so now, to be able to approach a transmedia project or any sort of project, we, we now need to not just think about the individual story that we want to tell. We need to think about the place where the story takes place, the world in which the story lives. And that's what I call a story world. And that's that one narrative universe that the PGA talks about. And so there's a difference between story world and story. The, uh, the, the story of Dorothy and the tornado and Landon and Oz and, and going on the adventure of the, the Yellow Brick Road is a story. But the story world is Oz itself that is much bigger than, than, than Dorothy. Dorothy is just a single story that takes place in a much bigger world. Uh, Luke Skywalker is just a, his, his epic journey to destroy the Death Star and you know, the, the story of the dysfunctional Skywalkers, uh, the Skywalker family, is just a single story in a much bigger world. The story of the Matrix is Neo and Morpheus and, and their adventure trying to deconstruct and tear down the Matrix itself but the story world of the Matrix is a futuristic Earth that's been taken over by machines, and they use people as batteries and put them in a weird VR environment as they use them as batteries. That's the world of the Matrix, which is much bigger than just Neo and Morpheus' story, and that's just one story that you can tell. And so now we're, we're, I look at, at not just what the individual story is, but what's the story world that we need to build around that story. Because what happens is if you, if you build your story world right, one, it'll be more attractive to an audience. Remember, uh, one of the two reasons that Spielberg told, uh, said that, that Star Wars was so much more valuable than Close Encounters was because he said that, that Lucas built a world that, where people wanted to explore. And so the story world is a key component in, in multi-platform success because that holds the rest of your story potential. So one, it engage, it's more engaging for the initial story that you want to tell, but also it creates more potential for more stories moving forward. So it, if we put it into a, a consumer, uh, like a consumer model, and if your individual stories, if you look at them as commodities, and so my individual story is an orange, and I need, I need to sell my orange in, in order to get money, and this is my business. And if, if, I just ha if I'm holding oranges, I could probably just only, only hold a couple individual oranges uh, to take them out to the side of the road to sell. But if I want to sell more oranges, I need a box. And if I have a big box, now I can have 30, 40, 50, 60 oranges, depending on how big my box is, that I can now take to the, to the side of the road to sell my oranges at my orange stand. So the box 
having the box to hold my oranges increases my revenue potential for my venture. The story world is the box that holds your individual stories. And so some, of, some story worlds are very big, like Star Wars, uh, like Star Trek, like Game of Thrones and Westeros. The, there's these gigantic story worlds. Other story worlds are much smaller, but at the same time, uh, they can still hold multiple oranges, which increases revenue potential. So these are the things that can attract investors and attract buyers. But we have to look at the building of a story world as a separate discipline of telling a story. And it's something that, uh, that most people don't look at as a separate, sort of the separate discipline or a separate style of creation. Because just because you're a good storyteller doesn't mean you're a good world builder. Just because you're a good world builder doesn't mean you're a good storyteller. You need both and in order to, to succeed on sort of these, these big levels. But, but, uh, but uh, so in my original book, uh, Make Your Story Really Stinking Big, I outlined some, some strategies of world building. Of uh, It's not building a world and telling a bad story. That won't work because if you build a great world and tell a bad story, your product's not going to be any good. You know, I, I'm a fan of, uh, uh, of of big worlds, big, you know, I grew up uh, Star Wars, uh, Lord of the Rings type of stuff, so I, I like these big worlds. But you look at something like uh, the Wachowskis when they did uh, Jupiter Ascending, and that was a tremendous world that they built, but the the movie was very, was, was, was not as good as the world, which ultimately made the project just not sustainable. And so you can build a great world, but if you have a bad product that you put out, bad movie, bad book, bad TV show, it's just not going to work. If you tell a great story with a bad world, you could win an Oscar, but you're not going to be able to extend the life of the project or be able to uh, do all the other things that you want to do because your, your multi-platform potential and your revenue potential and your story potential all reside in the story world itself. So, so now we need both. We need, there are these two things that we need to be able to tell what I think is a 21st century story is we need a great story world and great stories within those worlds. That's what's great about the Hunger Games. The world of the Hunger Games is really interesting and cool, um, and, but at the same time, Katniss's story within that really cool world is emotional and engaging and something that people can all get behind. Harry's story in Harry Potter is interesting and emotional and we want to follow that, but the world behind Harry is just as cool. And a, a uh, rule of thumb that I use is if you can take out your main character and what's left is really cool and interesting, you probably have a good story world. So like we can take Katniss out of the Hunger Games and Pan Am, which is the story world, is still really interesting and cool. Even without Katniss, it's really cool. Uh, if you take uh, Batman out of, Go out of Gotham or out Batman out of Batman, you, you, you have Gotham. Gotham is such an interesting story world. They have a TV show. Gotham that, that doesn't have Batman in it. It's, it. It can sustain on its own. Uh, you take Luke Skywalker out of Star Wars, arguably you've made it better. Uh, you, a lot of people think he's the most annoying guy in there. Uh, so there's other characters and other interesting things that you can follow. Same with Game of Thrones, same with all these things. Even something like Deadwood on HBO, Westworld, The Leftovers. I love, these all have like dynamic story worlds that aren't big Star Wars worlds, but they're really interesting well-crafted stories that if you take out, I'm a big fan of The Leftovers, you take out Nora and, you know, in Kevin, you take out the main characters, the rest of the world is interesting. Same with Westworld, the same with everything. 
But if you take Rocky out of Rocky, right, then you just have Philly, you know, <laughs> and like, like 1970s Philadelphia, which you can see the difference, right? And so, and so now what happens is that whole brand around Rocky is only bu is built on Sylvester Stallone's aging shoulders and you can't get away from him. And I know they're trying to pass the torch to Creed and that was good, but, but you can see where they've been limited because they didn't build a great story world, but they won an Oscar, right? And so my thing is let's win an Oscar and build a great story world uh, around it so we can extend and expand uh, as much as we want. And so in that original book, Make Your Story Really Stinking Big, I outlined some strategy. In my new book, uh, uh, You're Gonna Need a Bigger Story, then I even go into more strategy about it because what we've seen in the past couple years is, is there's, been a, there's been a premium put on how to create great story worlds from independent creators that when they go shop stuff, when they go shop a spec script, the scripts that have great story worlds are, have been getting disproportionately good deals that, uh, as opposed to the, the scripts that are good that just don't have good story worlds. So if you look at the spec deal, the average spec deal say is $200,000, $250,000. The specs that have great story worlds have been getting picked up $2 million, $3 million, $2.5 million because the studios that look at those, they'll say that has one good story in it but this other thing has one good story plus 40 other stories that I could potentially uh, uh, tell across platforms. So I see video games, I see TV, I see multiple features, I see cartoons, I see comic books. So from a studio's perspective, all of a sudden, spending $2 million on 40 stories rather than $200,000 on one story is a, better, is a better buy. It's like going to Costco and buying in bulk. And so if they, they think, if, they, if I can buy the big IP that has lots of story potential, now this is a wise long-term investment for us. And so I just, I just took two projects to China and over the past you know, couple months and went over without a script and uh, sat with Oscar-winning producers who said, we don't really look at things without, uh, without a script. And I say, well... Um, Let's, let's talk about the world that I built. Let's talk about the world where all these stories are gonna take place. And all of a sudden, uh, I get an attachment from a producer. I get an attachment from the biggest director in China. I uh, get an attachment from, uh, you know, another, uh, from a, a person that used to run a studio over there that's coming on as a producer. Then all of a sudden, I'm attaching all these people, and I don't even have a script. I just have this really interesting world that I've built where they see all the different story potential, and all of a sudden, now financers come, and, and then writers look at it and say, I would love to write in that sandbox. I wanna play in that sandbox. And so uh, it's, it's a really interesting time now in the marketplace where the story world has, has, has taken its own separate spot in the marketplace. It hasn't, hasn't overtaken story and priority, because again, if you don't have a great story, your product's not gonna work. But the story world as being a separate asset, as being separately built and, and have its own, its own style of creation, its own rubric of creation, that has really been coming into prominence with, with sci-fi project, fantasy project, but at the same time, a very, very like real world based 
uh, projects that that you know you see in HBO that you that we you know dramas. If you have a good story world, then it has good good story potential, which means it has good revenue potential and shelf life for all the different uh, players within the. Uh, within the project. So in my new book, I go into greater detail because of this sort of this change in the marketplace of, of the story world being a separate asset. I even go into you know, probably 50% more of styles of creation and things that you should think about and the little tricks of the trade that really help you, whether you're building Star Wars or you're building your one hour domestic drama, uh, these are the things that can help, you, help the revenue potential of the world itself. So that then when you set the table with the world, you can jump in and tell this amazing heartfelt emotional story, then all of a sudden you're hitting on both fronts and your project actually has now has more potential, both financially and creatively. Well, that was my question actually, you're reading my mind because I was thinking with real world, I don't, I wasn't seeing how transmedia would work. If you take, let's say, the 80s films of John Hughes. Sure. Fantastic movies. Yeah. Um, what worlds, aside from like suburbia, 19, late 1980s, could really be there, or the high school dramas of you know Molly Ringwald or something. Yeah. You know because it seems like yeah with with science fiction or some of these comic book films, there's endless possibilities for these worlds. Yeah. But is there endless possi Are there endless possibilities for a drama or even take Silicon Valley, great show. Sure. Um, maybe maybe they're more so, but if if you look at some of the films of of you know that are more drama based or yeah. even romantic comedy. Sure. Are there chances for world, world oh, building? I, I think absolutely because I, mean, I think Silicon Valley is uh, the the uh, is a great example because outside of the specific characters in the Silicon Valley show, Silicon Valley itself, the world of Silicon Valley, is very interesting and uh, fascinating. The way that whole thing runs and the people who reside there, you can see more than one story than just you know a handful of characters, right? And so so now you're just it's, it's taken the Google Earth view of, uh, of, of a story and saying, what I have right here, is that, is that interesting? So you could have something like, um, like Rocky, for example. You know, I say, right, you take Rocky out of Philadelphia. Well, if, if I wanted to try to retrofit transmedia around Rocky, I'm going to have to try to figure out the story world of Rocky. And so uh, now I'm gonna look at, okay, Philadelphia, and then I'll say, okay, well, what is it about Philadelphia that, what's the most unique thing about Rocky? I think the most unique thing about Rocky is the fact that he was, he was an untrained boxer. He's not even just an untrained boxer, he's, he, was a, he started out as a leg breaker for the mob, who then becomes uh, a boxer, who then takes on the champ. So he's a guy that has been, um, he's a guy that is not trained for the industry that he wants to go into and against all odds is able to overcome all that and succeed at the highest level. So then I would say, okay, what is it about, uh, uh, maybe there's other people that live in this, other, this part of Philadelphia who do the same thing. Remember there was a movie, uh, Invincible, uh, Mark Wahlberg was a, he was a uh, bartender who tries out for the Philadelphia Eagles and makes the Philadelphia Eagles, based on a true story. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a similar thematic and a similar high concept as Rocky, somebody who's not trained to go into the industry that they want to go into and against all odds overcome the, uh, that obstacle and succeed at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I start to look at the different parts of Philadelphia 
Philadelphia and say, you know, uh, there's Fishtown in Philadelphia. There's a part of Philadelphia that, that Rocky, some is, is a part of called the Devil's Pockets. It's a little like a suburb, not a suburb, but like a, like a little borough almost of Philadelphia. So then I can say, okay, what is it about the people who live in the Devil's Pocket part of Philadelphia? And, and there's something about the grit and determination of just how you, the people who live there and the day-to-day struggle and the lives that they live and, and what they do to survive every single day that gives them the grit and determination to say, you know what, I can do anything that I want to do. I can be a boxer if I want. I don't care if I'm trained or not because I grew up in the devil's pocket. I know I can do all these amazing things. I can be, I can play for the Eagles. Maybe you can tell a story about the, uh, about a, you know, somebody wants to become a ballerina that is, you know, a former drug dealer out of a gang that wants to become a professional ballerina. Flash dance, sorry. Exactly, right? <laughs> so anything like that. Uh-huh. To where now, now this, this world, the devil's pocket, this little part of Philadelphia is creating people with the gut and the moxie and the grit that, that where they can go out and against all odds achieve everything they want to do. Now maybe Rocky Balboa has the feature films, but then maybe uh, there's a book series about the ballerina that you want to tell. Maybe there's a whole musical uh, uh, extension that you want to tell about somebody who wants, to, who wants to pursue music. Maybe there's a video game about somebody else that wants to do something. And now we've identified this really interesting world and then we can tie all those stories together. Because if you look at something like, on, just on NBC, Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago PD, Chicago everything, the, all the Chicago shows on NBC, they're all set in one story world. And then they cross over. And so they're all set in Chicago. And they all cross over in some really interesting ways. That's not transmedia because it's all TV, you don't shift your mediums. But the story world of Chicago supports multiple stories of multiple people and uh, and then allows you to cross over in some interesting ways. If you look at Chicago, even you have you have all the great stories that have been told in Chicago, from uh, the uh, Eight Men Out, which was the old uh, baseball movie with Charlie Sheen that was about the old uh, Chicago Black Sox that threw the World Series. 1918 baseball movie set in Chicago. Uh, you have um, Glen Gary, Glen Ross is a business movie set in Chicago. You have uh, less Natural Born Killers started in Chicago. There's a horror movie, like a serial killer movie in Chicago. You have uh, Meet the Fockers. One of those was in Chicago. You have um, uh, Divergent and Insurgent, which is post-apocalyptic Chicago. You have um, the, uh, the, it was the um, Will Smith movie, uh, iRobot. iRobot, set in futuristic Chicago. So what's interesting is all those stories exist within the same story world, just in different parts of the timeline, right? So from 1918 all the way to post-apocalyptic dystopian Chicago. And so those all exist in the same story world, which now, now if you're thinking as, as a broader vision of a project, you say, what is my story world? What is my, you know, if my story world is, is, is Philadelphia or Chicago or whatever, now how do I uh, explore the people that live in that world? But now also, how do I shift back and forth on the timeline to find other stories that I can figure out how to then tie in? Because then all of a sudden, if in, if in iRobot, the main character finds a 
there's something that they find in that world that then gives them a clue as to who actually threw the World Series back in 1918. Now you tie this story that's a sci-fi story back to the old baseball story that's over here on the timeline, and you're connecting everything in an interesting way, and it becomes a game for your fan base. So it's not always about the big Star Wars you know, thing. It's about how do I identify a part of our world that's interesting and cool that, uh, and sometimes you have to engineer that, right? And so I can engineer like that the neighborhood where Rocky grew up in as this neighborhood that churns out other people like Rocky that have similar stories, maybe in, some, uh, in different industries and to be able to, uh, to explore it across platform. Now that's just as much as a story world as Harry Potter. Maybe it's a smaller box to carry the orange. And maybe it's a sort of a different genre, but it's the same principles that build it. So in your first book, Make Your Story Really Stinkin' Big, you have chapter 10 and some sage advice. Yes. Sort of the ending chapter, I guess. Yes. So, uh, what's some, some sage advice that you can share from, from the book? So the, the biggest thing I would tell people that, that uh, are either trying to break in or uh, that, that already are in and then trying to figure out how to stay afloat is to think outside the paradigm, outside of the, the path that we're all given, the, the same door that everybody's supposed to go through, the same, um, the same way that we're supposed to do things. Start thinking outside those boxes, because when you can think outside those boxes, there's more opportunities than you, than you realize to actually differentiate yourself in the marketplace and uh, continue to do the thing that you love the most, which is tell stories and, which is, and to create things that people can, can, uh, can participate in and be affected by. And so it, it, for me, it's a, the mindset of having a mindset of disruption, having a mindset of innovation, having a mindset of an entrepreneur who builds a consumer brand rather than how a producer builds an entertainment brand. If, you, if, if, if anybody builds an entertainment brand the way an entrepreneur builds a consumer brand, you build it differently because there's different, different principles at play. But, but for some reason, people ex live in this little Hollywood bubble and they think free market economics doesn't, doesn't impact anything. We're just all about story in our, in our, in our as long as I just write good scripts, then I'm good. And, and sadly for, you know, 95% of writers out here, even working writers, that the just writing a, a great, just being great at your individual craft isn't enough. And, you know, unless you're one of like the top A-list, you know, number one person in, 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 in the town or the top 10 writers in the town, everybody's trying to figure out how do I stop going from paycheck to paycheck? How do I stop? Because even, even if you're like A-list, you're still going paycheck to paycheck. There's always periods of uncertainty. There's always periods where, where the, the new up-and-comers are in there and things start to wind down a little bit and you got to get out there and hustle. They may be big paychecks to big paychecks, but there's a stress and a pressure that is just around this industry that if you don't start thinking outside of the paradigm, you, it just, it'll, it, it'll wear you down after a while. And, uh, and so, so the, the biggest advice I could get is just get out there and look at all the tools that uh, you have at your disposal and figure out how to use all of them in the best way, how to, how to look at models that have been there for 100 years and say, 
say, how do I incrementally def, uh, deviate from that? How can I how can I operate within it, but at the same time put pressure on it from the outside to start to change it? How can I establish myself and my brand as a writer and a filmmaker uh, as, as a different brand than all these other eight million people that are trying to do the exact same thing as me? How do I do all those things? And it, so that it's not always, how do I just write the better script? Because it's very difficult to write the better script. So, so now, I, if, 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 if you put yourself in a disruption mindset, in an innovation mindset, I'm thinking outside the box, I'm kicking the box down the road, and, and looking at it just from a completely different mindset. Now there's opportunities that they'll see that, that they didn't see before because they were too myopic. Right? They'll see that maybe, you know, maybe if I, if I create a multi-platform transmedia super story that has a film and a, and, a, and a book series and a TV show and a video game uh, component and a mobile game component, then if I build that, I can shop it as a movie, but at the same time, I can also shop it as TV, but at the same time, I can also shop it as a video game, but at the same time, I can also shop it as a book series. I worked with a, with a filmmaker who, who was trying to shop a TV pilot for years. And, and I said, okay, well, let's, let's build some of this stuff out. And uh, she built a book series into her plan. She, as she was shopping her TV pilot, she was able to take this book series and get a, get a publishing deal out of it. Uh, where she she was never able to get the TV deal, but she ended up selling it as, as uh, to a publisher, got a publishing deal, is now a working author uh, at, with books, and is using the audience she's building from the books. Now the TV public the TV networks are coming to her oh, wow. to to uh, say, can we put your books on TV? And so, and so what that did is it gave her not just one outlet that she just kept going after because she's like, I'm a TV writer, all I can do is TV. Let's think a little bit bigger, let's think differently and think about how to approach the marketplace differently. What the, the networks and the studios and all the buyers, what they, what they really buy is audience, what they buy is pre-awareness. And so that, they don't, studios and networks don't reboot things because they love them. It's, the people didn't greenlight, the studios didn't greenlight Baywatch because they love Baywatch. They greenlighted, they greenlit Baywatch because there's, there's a pre-awareness of Baywatch that makes the investment less risky. And so if you understand the principle of what they love is pre-awareness, then all your job is as a creator is to how do I create pre-awareness? If I can create pre-awareness, for my TV show, create pre-awareness for my movie, I've solved the problem. Because if they love pre-awareness, I'm gonna give them pre-awareness. But how do I do pre-awareness for a movie if I'm a filmmaker? I can't do pre-awareness for a movie by making another movie because then it's a catch-22. Well, the way you do pre-awareness for a movie is to now do something other than a movie. Let's go out and do something that we know we can do, easy in the marketplace, that can quickly build, a, build an audience. Maybe you publish your own book, maybe you do music, maybe you do social media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you build that pre-awareness for it. Then the studios and the networks, they now will listen to you, have a different conversation because you've broadened your thinking and you've established your pre-awareness. Not only that, but you've generated revenue, made your investors happy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you only get to that point if you think outside the box. You have to think from a, not from a story perspective, but an IP perspective. Think from an IP perspective, then again, 
execute on a story level, but you always have to think from an IP perspective so that you can take advantage of different opportunities. But it seems like creating a product, it's easier to be a disruptor. It's easier, you know, you look at Apple, they, they, they were the underdog for a while sure. where they targeted to people that were the misfits, you know, their whole campaign, which was really cool. And then of course, that type of person wanted to buy those machines. And look at Tesla, they, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a car that was not a Prius. It yeah. was something that was sexy and it spoke volumes about who you were. Right. But in terms of writing a, 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 a script or, or, or getting a series out there, it seems like it would be very difficult to, to differentiate yourself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's very difficult to differentiate yourself. That's, that's why I say, let's, let's, it's, if, it's dif if it's difficult to differentiate yourself within the television industry or, or you know, the, from, you know, from all the other series or from the, all the other features that, 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 that are being created, the one way to differentiate yourself is to, to, is to differentiate and diversify your plan. And, and, and differentiate and diversify your intellectual property to where now it's not just a, your, your, your IP and your project isn't just a feature film. There's all these other components there. When you do that, you differentiate yourself as a creator. Okay, I see right? what you're saying. And yeah. so and mm -hmm. you, you can look at somebody like J.J. Abrams, like George Lucas, their brand isn't the same brand as any other filmmakers. People look look at them almost in a different category. Sure, okay. Uh, right? And so that helps differentiate you uh, from the beginning. Secondly, if you get good at it, what it does is also allows you to do it for other people. So now you can go to somebody who's making a movie and say, hey, you ever thought about doing it like this? And if you've already done it a couple times, they'll come to you and say, hey, can you help me do this to my project? One, which is great for you because you get paid for it. Uh, and, and, and secondly, that continues just to build your brand as this, uh, this disruptor type of a person. Another thing that you could that 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 I always talk about uh, and, and try to encourage people in is to figure out the uh, the passion and the purpose behind the brand. Like what? Like how do you make your brand important? How do you make your brand um, uh, sort of uh, um, connected to the like the emotional foundation of, of people and what people care about and it's the thing called corporate social responsibility if you can tap into how how your entertainment brand isn't just cool but how it's important on some level then you actually you can actually connect with the audience in a different way not just in a cool way but in an emotional way and so uh, a lot of times now what's been in vogue of how to get series and features uh, uh, produced and picked up is that before you go to the networks or the studios or to whoever that you want to shop these things to is to figure out the thematic premise behind your project. I call it a soapbox. And is that what are you trying to say about your project and with your project? You take the time to go build an advisory council of organizations that will endorse, not fund, but in just come alongside and endorse you. And so if you, you know, if you have, uh, you know, something like get the movie Get Out, uh, that is very much, one, it's a great movie, but it's infused with this race conscious soapbox that, that talk, you know, that really is, is seeded with the, with the evils of racism and how, you know, we, you know, it's very apparent. Uh, but if you have a project like that, take the time to go to, you know, uh, the NAACP, to Black Lives Matter, to some of these other organizations say, I just want you to endorse me. 
and 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 because the reason that I want to create this project is I want to enhance the lives of of, of certain people in in this certain way. Uh, if if you have a a, specific, a project that is uh, like the leftovers that is all about grief and how you manage grief and how you manage loss, and then all of a sudden take the time to go find organizations that are focused on how to help people manage grief, how to help people manage loss. Uh, these are different, uh, there's authors that write books about these things. How do you make those collaborations and connections from the beginning? Then when you go have those conversations with networks and studios or investors, you can, you can, they can see the organizations that are coming alongside of you and endorsing your project because of what you're trying to say with it. That then also distinguishes you in the marketplace as well, because you you now have you're now you're now moored to uh, to organizations and entities that that uh, that have been well established in, in in society. Not only that, if the organizations endorse you, then their donor bases and the people that they uh, that they connect with will also support it, which then proves that there's a market for the project. So, so it's very it's interesting, you know. I outline all this in the in, in my new book, where uh, where it's figuring out that emotional base, that that uh, that emotional foundation that can align yourself with nonprofit entities, other organizations that then help differentiate yourself. Then, if you're if you if you then diversify the product line in a transmediated super story way, now you're hitting on both levels, and you really have something different. So, not only is your project differentiated. But you, as a creator, have been differentiated yourself, and you have a different brand yourself, which is great. But you only get to that point is if you elevate your, elevate your thinking above, I'm just a filmmaker. I'm just an author. I'm just a director. That's all I am. I, I, all I do is direct movies. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a movie director, and that's it. If you never think outside of that box, You'll never do anything else. You'll never take advantage of the, the hundreds of opportunities that surround you every single day. You know, you, we have to be able to build, build the car differently. And it, an 18-wheeler, when it's going down the road and it blows a tire, keeps on going, right? But if you're a filmmaker and, you, and, and you're riding down the road on a unicycle and you blow that tire, you're, you fall flat on your face, right? So we, we have to figure out the, the machine that we're riding needs to be built differently so that we can, we, can, we can help differentiate ourselves and keep going and float on top of the water, right? And so uh, mixing all my metaphors at this point, but, but, but you get what I'm trying to say is that it's a mindset, it's a vision that if you don't have, you're not gonna be able to take advantage of it. But if you do have, there's so much stuff that you can do. It's incredible once people, it's like, it's like seeing the matrix, right? You now see, oh, I can do that, and 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 I can collaborate with this person, and I can generate revenue over here, and now I can do this and generate pre-awareness within loops me back around to have better conversations with the network studios and investors that I wanted to have conversations with from the beginning, all the while, building this really dynamic, robust audience base that will then follow you for your entire career as long as you keep feeding them in the right way. The reason I was laughing was because I was actually thinking of the wheel analogy, and then you said it. Oh, cool. Which yeah, was yeah, just yeah, so, sure. That's why I was smiling, but yeah. it sounds like, so you're not really inventing, if you want to go with a metaphor, a better story wheel. You're giving tentacles to that yes, wheel. absolutely. You're, you're spreading different, okay, so yep. that makes sense. Yep, sure. What is churn rate? Churn rate is how quickly people get sick of something 
And so it's, it's you know, a, a kid will play with a toy for five minutes and then get sick of it and move to something else. And uh, that's churn rate. And so the, the faster the churn rate, the, 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 the worse it is uh, because people get sick of your stuff uh, at a much quicker rate. And so you know, how, um, if you're flipping through the channels, you, you, you land on a, on a show, how, how, how long are you gonna give that before you flip to the next channel? On the radio, how long are you gonna give a song before you flip to the next song? And so churn rates typically in a competitive environment it are very high uh, because there's so many options now. I'm just like bouncing from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And that, that you know, back in the 50s when there was just radio, uh, then people would sit and listen to one radio station for hours and just listen to radio dramas and news and, and they wouldn't flip to anything because there was only one thing that they could do. Now with all the stuff that we have to, to do and all the entertainment options, the oversaturated tsunami of entertainment that is around us all the time, churn rates are very high and, and that's bad for creators. So we now have to think of how we create, uh, how, do we, how do we create a brand that lowers the churn rate of people? How do we keep them engaged for longer and in more meaningful ways into our brand and our stories? And, uh, and that's, that's something very important because, because the longer you can engage the audience and the longer the valuable engagement takes place, the more chance you have to then convert them into a, now a loyal audience member uh, or ultimately to what I call a brand evangelist, somebody who's not just watching your stuff but actually helping market your stuff. Hey, did you see the new Game of Thrones this week? Hey, you know, you should check out this show. You can go watch this movie because it's awesome. Um, if, you can, if you can convert them into that, that's where, that's the sweet spot because then when you can get people, one, loyal to your brand, two, that are so loyal that they're marketing your brand, you start to solve some of that P&A issue we had talked about earlier of, of having to rely on so much P&A because you've activated your fan base to do something valuable. But you're, not, you're never going to activate the fan base if they only engage with your stories for 10 seconds at a time. So now we have to slow that down, get them engaged, and, uh, and, and, and have that engagement be valuable. And if you can do that, then all of a sudden, you, you've, you've separated yourself from the marketplace and solved a major problem in the, uh, in the industry, which is these high churn rate issues. So does that mean we keep our content shorter or give them breaks? Well, it, it's, it depends. It depends on your content. But the, 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 thing, that, the thing that people love most is story. We live in an entertainment culture and people love story more than anything else. And so again, whereas attention spans may be seemingly low, they, they're no longer low if you can engage them with story. If, if you have a great story, they'll watch it for 10 hours in a row and, and that's fine. So, so, the, so a 10 hour binge watch is a very low churn rate because they're watching for 10 hours, they're not, they're not turning off. So this is where technique and craft come into play. If you can understand how to hook them, hook them fast, give them new and better things as you go through the story, then all of a sudden you're, you're starting to lower that churn rate. Uh, but at the same time, it's how do we create multiple engagements that, you know, if you're, if you're operating just in network television, you have one one hour engagement every week and that's it. And so now between one, your one one hour engagements, uh, you have a week in between, right? So now 
if we can start filling that week with some other things, so as a companion web series like they do on uh, uh, AMC, maybe a, a digital comic that gives them more valuable parts of the story that bridges the gap between episodes. What you do every single time that you have your audience engage with valuable content, valuable story, then slowly you're going to start to lower their churn rate until you get them to the point that they'll watch your stuff for 10 hours. Typically, they won't do that at the beginning. It's a process of getting them to that point to where they'll say, okay, I'll watch your stuff for 10 hours. I'll, I'll watch 60 hours of your content in a month through a binge watch uh, because you've, you've, you've spent the time and made an investment into me as an audience member to a point where I'm willing to give you this investment into your brand. Right? And so, and, and the only way to get them to that point is to have as much and as many valuable engagements as humanly possible. And the thing that they value most is story. So you, it's not just marketing and promotions. That's a big transmedia misconception and it's all advertising and marketing. It's really, it's the best is story-based stuff. How do I create story-based engagement? So like at the um, South by South, South by Southwest, they had the, the show um, Bates Motel created a new uh, a, a replica of the Bates Motel that you could actually rent out a room and stay in while you're at South by Southwest. That's cool marketing, uh, but it's not transmedia because it didn't give you any more of the story because, because what happens is, is when it was time to go for the festival, they would open the door and they would leave the room and they'd come back at night and you know they have very limited time in, in the room. But if for some reason, some way, like they took a picture up the wall and all of a sudden Norman had written a message behind that picture. If they would take the Gideon's Bible out of the, out of the desk and open up and it's not a Gideon's Bible at all, if there's an object in there or maybe it's a, it's a journal that's been written by Norman to get, give more insight into his character, insight into some storylines. There's creaky floorboards that you could pop up and the stuff underneath there. Like you flip over the mattress and there's stuff in the mattress, maybe stuff actually hidden inside the mattress you have to rip open to find. If you can extend the story so, in such a way that the hotel room becomes part of the story. Now, now what's happened is you've created longer points of engagement for that fan base. And that the fans that are in the room maybe don't even want to go outside because the whole room is part of the story that they love. Presumably they don't stay in the Bates Motel unless they watch that Bates Motel show. Or even if they do, maybe it's a mechanism to get them to watch the show. But you're gonna have a better chance to get them to watch the show is if you start to seed the story and extend the story in a really interesting way. So maybe you never watched the show before, but based on this experience that you have and all these weird little story clues and interactions that you, you discover in this room, now it makes you even, uh, you have a greater chance of checking it out far beyond just a marketing experience. And so, so it's, the, it's, it's the how, it's how do we create lots of really valuable story-based engagements for the fan base. And the, every single one of those engagements creates a lower churn rate. And so maybe the churn rate's very high and for somebody that's, the, the, I'm ADD, I'm distracted, I like to do a hundred things, I never watch long, you know, long form TV, I just like watching web stuff, YouTube stuff, all this stuff. If you can just slowly start giving story-based engagement to that audience member, and then you start to lower the turn rate, lower the turn rate, lower the turn rate, lower the turn rate, 
to eventually you can get them to the point to say, okay, I'll watch your st stuff for 10 hours in a sitting because you've, give, you've invested into me so much already. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Okay, great. Houston, what do you talk about regarding log lines in your current book? So I always like to, to, to approach a log line of one, be able to explain the, the story that you're talking about, you know, your, the, the plot of your story needs to be teased in the log line. But at the same time, if you can also take, if you can also set up the larger play in the, in the log line, which primarily is uh, creating a world and being able to communicate the story world in that log line, then not only do you tease the plot, but you also tease the world, which is the bigger play. And so, uh, so the log line is just the starting point uh, that uh, your project has to exist beyond the log line. So it, the, your log line is just one story that's gonna take place, hopefully in this, in this larger world where multiple stories take place and cross over and connect in all these interesting ways. And so, if, but if you can even approach your log line with a with an interesting world attached and embedded in the log line then that's going to give you uh that's going to intrigue people uh maybe even more than the plot itself so if you remember the trailer guy a guy named uh, don lafontaine he was in a world you know he would start his the, like he's the movie trailer guy he the, the, like would always do those voiceovers right right he would uh he sort of coined that in a world thing sure and what what he's doing is in a world he sets up the context of a story world and then he's going to tell you in the midst of a trailer what the story is inside that world so you know in a world where all where one day a year all crime is legal. We have a family who is being terrorized by somebody, right? So, so that's like, uh, you know, that's how to set up the purge. So the, the story world of the purge is a, is a country where one night a year all crime is legal. Interesting story world, interesting concept that's, that, that is far bigger than one individual story. But if you can say in a world where all crime is legal for one night a year, then move into your individual plot now you've intrigued me based on the plot, but you've also intrigued me because there's a cool world. So, so, so it, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's like an establishing shot in a movie. So you know, an establishing shot in a movie is if instead of cutting directly into here where we're doing this interview, we're gonna first show the outside of the entire building and then move in here. Right. So the reason an establishing shot is a, is a normal thing in filmmaking is because the audience is more comfortable knowing where we are than moving into something very specific. And this is just the way we like, the humans and audience, this is the way we think. And this is what we're comfortable with because if you just jump directly into a scene, it can be disorienting. This is why you need an establishing shot. So I look at, at seeding a story world inside of a log line like having an establishing shot for your log line. So in a world where all crime is legal for one day out of a year, that's the establishing shot. Then we're jumping into the scene, which is your individual plot, which, you know, you have a, a, a husband and wife who, who you know, uh, uh, seek to survive the night from a guy who breaks in their house, right? So, so, that's, so it, it's, it's an interesting thing of like, how do we create big concepts from the, from the beginning? How do we create the big IP? Uh, but then ultimately, we get down to a point where we need to be able to execute and communicate it on a very small level. 
So how do we create Star Wars? How do we create something massive? How do we create something that can sustain for 20, 30, 40 years? But then when I'm talking to you as a producer or after I'm at a pitch fest or I'm talk whoever I'm talking to, how do I boil it down to a line? What, because again, we need a good story world and we need a good story. How do I do both in a log line? Typically log line fo focuses on the story, but at the same time, I need the cool story world. But I don't wanna just pitch the story world without the story because then my, then, then my product's not gonna work. So I need both. And so I think you craft the log line in a really interesting way to do both. It's just a different type of a process but, uh, to, to approach it, but I think it's always very helpful.